Marcia Violet Crosby, and um, I, my dad's people are from Haida Gwaii. Um, his parents were both from Skidigit, it's a south end, and my mum's uh, father was from Haida Gwaii also. Uh, he's from the northern end called Masset. They speak a different dialect. Ooh, more speakers now, but. And my mum's mother is from Metlakatla, which is a Simshian village just across from Prince Rupert. Rupert is just a little below the um, Alaskan, Alaska, B, uh, I would say BS, BC border. So I lived, grew up and lived there all my life. And uh, I've lived many lives. And I actually was uh, lived a very religious life. Uh, well, my, my mother. And uh, so it was very, you could, we didn't really hang around with anyone, but I, we still all live together with my grandparents. So lots of our relatives, Masset, Skidigit, Matlakatla relatives, Simshan relatives, then lots of fishermen, everybody fished. So I saw a lot of those people, a very fluid household, huge house in the Prince Rupert. My mom, my mom grew up there from the time she was 13. And um, like most coastal people, there was a lot of traveling. Um, if you lived a marine life, you traveled a lot, so that was good. And then um, when I was about 34, I went to university. I think it was, I read, you know, if you read, if, what was that, uh, Invisible. I can't remember. I, I can't even remember the things I write. That's so terrible. <laughs> the construction of the imaginary Indian? Yeah. So I went to school when I was 34. I hadn't gone to high school. I, my parent, my, my mother's religion was very, um, couldn't, uh, hang around with worldly people. So other than relatives, no worldly friends. And I lived in that church till I was 36. And then I escaped, which is really great. Got to go to school. Um, got my BFA. Then I got a Decided to do an MA because I had uh, 16 and 15 and 17 year old daughters at that time. So I just thought <clears throat> if I'm going to be able to look after them, I should get a degree that I can work. And I did. And I taught for 16 years Native Studies, literature. I have degrees in writing and English literature. Did a lot of sort of general Native Studies, but mostly law mostly about land because everything in BC is about no treaty. And then I got tired of that. So I started my PhD in long, to, way too long, <laughs> 2008, like, oh my God, 2008. And then um, I worked two years on it and I was almost finished, but I switched to another topic. So here I am two years later on this other topic, but not entirely separate. 
And uh, I've worked on this idea of, um, I think Tanya told you a little bit about it, but I'm not talking too much about it because I still have to publish the book. But Okay. <laughs> it's, I, well, it's okay. It's on um, um, tableau vivants that were about the Stations of the Cross. And it was a, a, a form of, um, at first I just looked at it and I was so shocked because I, I'm mostly a Northwest Coast person. And most Northwest Coast people are Anglicans, Methodists, or Presbyterians, right? Mm-hmm. Mostly Methodists and Anglicans. And, oh, this whole bottom world of British Columbia was all Roman Catholic, oblates of Mary Immaculate. And so after leaving my religion, of course, I never wanted to see religion again. But I also didn't want to talk about, I also didn't want to talk anymore about um, colonialism because uh, all of my students were Native and they were people that actually went to residential schools. Like they were my age. So, and they were coming back to school. I couldn't stand anymore. I couldn't take any more of the, the, the violence and the, every kind and so I just went oh I can't do that so when I came and I started doing artwork I started doing performance art but a lot of that is very mm, visceral and uh, painful so when I did this PhD I went I'm not doing any more colonial violence I I actually can't take it anymore my body can't take it because I do think that people um, get to a place where they can't do a certain kind of work anymore. You change, you know, you I change with age. Um, you change your, the more you grow your perspectives, the kinds of uh, the materials you work with, as in, um, I love the photograph. So I've spent most of my last few years in the archives, right? Looking at images and newspapers. So that's been really important for me to, finally find a way of working with cultural cultural production and creativity but without being overwhelmed by the violence of colonialism so I started to really think well these people aren't a bunch of stoops like what were they doing why did they want to be part of these performances and I know on the North Coast, there was a lot of performance activities. And I thought, well, now you get to learn about all these interior Salishan and coastal Salishan people, which was really great for me. So everything was new. It was a lot of work to release. Really and I've, I've really enjoyed it. And I just came to know Tanya through that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, she was hanging around with this young woman who is actually the daughter of a friend of mine. We lived together at UBC when we were both doing our degrees out there. So that was kind of nice. And we had a brief conversation then about the um, passion plays. But I didn't re- I wasn't really going to do those. I'd always I'd almost finished all the other work. And when they asked me to have I needed more visual material, I thought, well, OK, I'll just start looking through all of these newspapers I found with all this stuff. And that, that's really what got me to this place. And it's kept me sustained uh, over the last few years. I totally love it. Um, and I was able to do it because, I don't know if this is a BC thing,
but I don't really like um, touching other people's histories and business. So I had two goals, and that was I was only going to look at um, Indigenous people who wanted to be famous. And that was easy in post-war because a lot of people wanted to be known as artists, but there was no intellectual there was there was no uh, there was no way to hold that up because they didn't have access to galleries. There weren't enough people that were interested in them in the art world. Yes, in anthropological world, as Tanya talked about. So, I had to really look to find a space. I thought, well, what? Where did they sell their stuff amongst them, or on their own, or outside of galleries? And I found really good spaces. And damn, I wish I kept. I mean, that that I I actually have to write that out too. And that, and that finding why people do what they do, what you know, what informs them, and yes, colonialism's ever ever present, but okay, let's just let's just put that aside for a while, you know, let's just you know let it stand over there, and we'll just stand here and we'll talk about what do you love about it. And so, what what I knew was that. Um, over the course of time, within a decade, um, cameras had become way more accessible to people. And so uh, there were more people taking photographs of these performances because they were, a you know, the, the passion plays had been huge and really there were people who were very interested in them. And these people were involved in a form of religious theater. And I just thought, well, haven't most Native people always been involved in religious theater? Certainly on the Northwest Coast. You know, like winter dancing. It was all about masks, wearing masks, and performing things, and creating all this amazing, um, they had all this technical wizardry. Like they could make platforms that, that, that lowered down and went around and, you know, they did all this stuff to shame other chiefs and make it seem like a person was taken up to the heavens and they'd be hurried away. And everyone knew that it was performance. But that didn't mean that they didn't believe in that spirit realm, too. So that existed. And within that, there was this whole business of prophecy was part of it, too, you know. So I just thought, okay, this is weird. Now this is getting about religion for me, and this is, you know, but but I I really helped me to look at those things. So um, of the relationships between why people became Christians, what was it about that their first religion that allowed them to go to the next level of just looking at crosses and you know um, keeping the Sabbath, things that were product, part of a, a whole sort of in between level and then moving to christianity like was it a process of people actually losing that whatever or was it a, a, a continual syncretism was it just this continual life of change and that is kind of <clears throat> what i like about now i'm going to go back to tanya okay so what i like about her work is that she does what a lot of uh well, a lot of artists do. I mean, she's a mother. She's uh, lived in lots of different places. She travels a lot as an artist and curator. So she has this landscape that she lives in now, you know, where she grew up part-time. And now she's living there, you know, her her space. But she also has a communication scape, 
right? And in that, she's she's actually not going from one place to another so much as she is uh, broadening this region. So she, in, in her own work alone, and by working with you and then me with you, we create these macro regions. And um, they don't have to lead to another region or another network. We just are living in this macro region now, and this is our locale. And so we live in these, and we might get to know each other more or not. And this is our, this is our, uh, our, our place of practice for right now. And that's really central to the work I do. It's like, what is it going, whatever, I mean, there's always the big structure to look at, you know? And, um, you know, this, you know, this term where people say, well, I'm implicated in that, you know, that saying Mm. like when, well, you know, we're all part of it. Yeah, I know. We're just a cog in a wheel, you know, but I never really liked that either because I, a lot of, uh, somebody was using this word white speak the other day and I thought that's not like, well, you're part of it, you know, you're implicated in it. And I'm thinking, yeah, what else? What else is there? Of course I am. But so I thought, okay, beyond that, beyond being a cog in a wheel, what am I manufacturing for myself in this locale with these people? And so um, I started to read, you know, work on relationality or, you know. Yeah, a little bit. Relations with people. And we come into this relation somehow and then we just have a little conversation. We think, yeah, oh, you do this, oh, I do that. And then pretty soon, well, maybe friendships grow. But we can create a relationship and we can even create a network, but we might not. But it isn't a matter of one thing leading linearly to the next thing. We have this methodological or, or conceptual space. And what I like about what Tanya does is she goes back and forth and lives within but she what I liked about what she says she says um, she sees herself also is disrupting that environment and I thought wow so she knows the environment's vulnerable and she's willing to be vulnerable which is part of a person's success where and and she mentioned that she said you know to be given permission not just to be an artist but to be an artist who makes mistakes Right? Because you make a lot of mistakes. Oh, she says, sends me this. Look at this. This is what I'm doing. I'm thinking, that's good. That looks like kind of like collage or whatever. Oh, no, but it was an accident. It didn't really work. Oh, okay. Then what was it supposed to look like? (laughs) (laughs) So so that was really great. And it was like, okay. And and then when she talked about wanting more, you know, what when you, I think you asked her, like, what's, what's this more, this work that you're doing? And, she wanted a place where there was more feedback, more communication. And I think that that's, we don't get enough of that. And I have become absolutely isolated since I started my doctorate. I used to go out to do all the openings and everything, but I couldn't do it anymore. You know, you just can't, because I have six grandchildren um, my parents were both alive when I started. My dad died two years after. My mom died suddenly last year. There have been multiple deaths in my family. 
I also do this work of writing eulogies and helping people with the body. Um, we just live really busy lives. And if you're an academic or an Aboriginal person in the city and you come from thousands, you know, like I would say, I could say truly, remember when we went to this big religious convention and my grand, my dad's mother and their family were there, we were all there. And I think there was 200 of us just at that convention of religious people. They didn't count all the other people that aren't. So I, I think I could safely say a thousand relatives. And I, and I would know a lot of them. So in a way, I kind of had to withdraw from everyone because I could only look after my mom and my dad. And I'd done so many funerals since I started the doctoral work that I was just couldn't take it anymore. So in a way, to be away is the way you do your work. But as Tanya says, I mean, you, you can't. The kids go with you where you go. The grandchildren say, call grandma. You know, like I haven't seen her. And you have to attend to that life. So here is Tanya, not just willing to be susceptible to her environment, to looking at landscapes, to looking at the impact of this colonial past of Harlan Smith. She's nice about it. Nicer than I would be. (laughs) 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 He's a shyster. And you didn't lie to people. You did bad things, you know, shameful things. You'd think they'd be embarrassed of themselves. But I guess they really thought they were more than we were and that their work was more important than our beliefs. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> but what I like, though, is this constantly walking and remembering that you're disrupting an existing environment too. So I'll tell you a little story. Um, I just finished my BFA. Finished my BFA and what was I doing? I had, I just, maybe I was in my first year of my master's degree and people were just starting. When you first start out when you're a new Indian on the block and so that was like 1989, 1990. So people were inviting me. I go, what? No, you don't mean me. No, like and it was big. And and it, you keep going until you realize you don't know as much as they think you know. That they think you think you know. It's like crazy. So so I go and I give this talk. And I just, you know, graduated. I'm studying about modernism and modernity and all these aesthetics that were created. You know, this beautiful aesthetic. You know, the Hyde has made the best art on the Northwest Coast and it's modernist aesthetic. You know, and so I'm like arguing and saying... There's no such thing as a singular native worldview. And I'm really thinking, I'm not being very clear enough because in my mind I'm thinking there's no universalist aesthetic discourse as in modernism, which is how they were judging Indian art in the 50s and 60s, you know, um, Morisot and Bill Reed and whatever 
whoever they picked. And this woman gets up and she was furious and she was my age that I am now. And she was, there certainly is a native worldview. Well, yeah, but I, and then, <laughs> and she got up and she gave it to me. And I knew right then I went, I am never, I'm never ever going to write again without thinking about an indigenous audience. I'm going to keep remembering. I'm not going to just be critiquing non-native people all the time because that isn't who I, wa I want. I'm not saying I'm not writing my work for them, but I want indigenous people to read my work. And I, you know, I'd always just think about my mom when I'd be writing. I'd think, will she get this? She is, she, I once wrote a thing and I thought, oh, she's going to like this. And it was about Temla Ham. It was just a really old um, story, Simshan story about where we came from originally and everything. And she said, I tried to read that book you gave me. I didn't really understand it, but I liked the pictures. And it was all these paintings by the Canadian group of seven. It was like, okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> but still, you have to try, right, to, to write for a different body of audiences and that after that that happened to me after that I wrote um, nations and urban landscapes and then I very clearly articulated it's not that I don't believe in elders it's just that the uni the universities created that term elders like like there were these all these old people not all screwed up people just all these really wise old people that knew everything about culture. It's like, that's so not on. And it was crazy. So I got really clear about what was produced. You know, it's just like there was a dying Indian, but then there was the produced dying Indian, you know, like, oh, they're dying out anyway. So there was the reality of it and the production of it to make excuses, to hold up particular other kinds of platforms. And so after that, I really got clear about what I wanted to say. I still don't believe in an Indian native worldview. You know, I'm not about that. I, I like the local better. I think you really have to look at very specifically about what's going on with people and what they're doing with their work. Even when they, even if they, belong to another group or particular body of people that seem to be making a lot of the similar work, you really have to look at how they're producing it right in a particular environment. But that also allows you to look at commonalities. So to go back to that idea of regions, this idea that different things, if we create these larger regions like you and I and Tanya are doing in this particular moment. You're where do you live now? I live in New Mexico right now. I traveled down to Santa Fe I think last year, but I felt really sick. I didn't know about the the altitude. Mm. So you, we have all these people that we know in these places, and and uh, we see each other a lot. I mean, considering, but really, that's how it was for the interior people, and for West Coast people. They saw each other a lot more because they traveled to hop fields. Now, the same people that were traveling up from up in Haida Gwaii to the hop field down 
in, in you know, Washington or Oregon were the same people that were f- coming from, you know, the interior and coming down or coming down the Columbia River or coming down the Fraser. And, you know, so it's just that it's a little bit different. But like when I was first reading this, like all these interior people where she comes from, from Tanya's come, they actually, um, they learned telegraphy, right? So they became very good at telegraphy and script because uh, the Chinook Wawa or the Chinook language was made into a very particular kind of Chinook um, that they already spoke as a localized form of Chinook, which wasn't necessarily a trade jargon, but it could be a language. And then this Oblate priest, he makes a script for them. So they start writing back and forth to each other. But these people are sending mail like back and forth to other people in the region. And they already know about travel. And this was a really weird thing, like just the telegraphy itself, like actual, um, you know, putting things over the telegraph. They also had like shorthands, like, you know, the LOL or whatever else there is. (laughs) So their own little things like that, signals that they use for friends or I love you. Same with postcards. Postcards actually had little abbreviated signals. The way you put the stamp on, if you turned it sideways a certain way, or if you turned it upside down, you know, um, all those were secret signs between people. So people that use any kind of long distance communication, I think, figure out have to figure out some way because it we've created a general landscape right so then how do we keep it how can we how can we make use of it and on a personal level is what i'm saying and some people do So now I'm going to talk about her materials that I've gone on that jaunt. (laughs) Materials that are susceptible to the environment, putting the paper down, you know, here's this light uh, coming on it. She's using film that got caught on fire itself, burned up, you know. I like this concept of her being over, uh, these materials being overexposed or underexposed to light. Either way, it wouldn't work. So she had to find this, you know, this balance. And I think metaphorically, just as a person and as an artist, I was thinking about um, that she's she's treading, you know, she's experimenting, but she's working in a very sensitive environment in terms of her materials and in terms of of the the documentation she's using, and then that history that it refers to and then the history that is she's moving it out there you know forward and out there in the world so um i was thinking in an interesting kind of way maybe it's not but she's saying i'm willing to be that vulnerable these things are that vulnerable 
And she's kind of like a canary in the proverbial <laughs> mine shaft, you know, because we do put things out there. And we might be, you know, <laughs> it might not work. <laughs> and then, you know, bye. End of that little experiment didn't work. You know, you're like done. And yet she does it. She just does it, you know. And it was kind of funny because when she said, so I put, I, I put this crystal. She's got the whole thing's loaded. Like, it's not one of those healing crystals, but it could be. But I'm putting this crystal here. And basically, I'm healing my, no, I'm not heal, I'm not trying to heal myself. But, you know, just so I don't start thinking in a linear way and, you know, like moving along with the camera the way Harlan Smith did, I'm trying to break up my own consciousness so I don't get too unconscious like Harlan did. <laughs> I just, I loved it. It was so fun just to think about, you know, and that's what artists do. Writers get to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. I mean, we get to do it all the time. And we always know they're going to either say, oh, it was too dense or, you know, she could have added this. But no one's going to no one's going to say, oh, she really bombed on that one, didn't she? It's like, I'm just like, I think it's amazing. You know, the work artists put out there. It's great. Not that you bombed. I'm not trying to say you bombed, Tanya. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, it can happen. And anyway, it's just um. So I'm happy that we get to work together. I want to go to this place of activism you, where you talked about activism with her. And um, and she said it was more than activism, right? Mm. Yes. Because you have to love that work. You have to be really called to do it. Uh when it is activism, when it's just like, I have to say something or, but I really like the way she talks about how you have to like love the thing, the parts of it too. Love those materials. Be really, really interested in what is that? What's gonna happen if I put that here or shine that light this way? And to be willing to, to not know to experiment to that degree, I think, is pretty brilliant and bold. Mm, and do you feel like that um, that idea can be useful in forms of activism, like that that letting go of the fear? Do you feel that transferring over into activism, kind of creating activism as art? I think you have to be bold. I think you have to let go of the fear. I mean, I think I think it's there, but it, I mean, you're smart. It's just like we hold our kids' hands and we say, uh, yeah, I know, you're great, you can walk, you're good. You just have to hold my hand until you can walk by yourself. And then when you let your kid walk by themselves, of course, you know, you have to still keep your eye out and stuff. That's not a very good metaphor for what I'm trying to say, but I'm always, I can't really judge myself because I, I have fits of fear uh, still. And, um, but mine is a different, I, I have a fear. I, I, de I developed, um, ADD, like I developed the fear of authority. So <laughs> if a cop pulls me over, I'll cry. I, I will actually cry. And this is kind of funny. And I do let some people in, uh, places of authority get away with stuff with me. 
not very often anymore. But my only way that I used to be able to, to deal with it was by getting really mad. And I was really mad. You know, where I loved it when she says, no, I'm pretty even but <laughs> she is. I'm still not. It might be generational. It might be because I think there was a time for being that mad all the time. And if you've been asleep most of your life, like in a religion or whatever, as I was, and then you find out when you're 30 something, not just what happened to all those people, but why that happened to your own parents and grandparents and why they behaved they did. Then you open yourself up to incredible and deep, deep heartbreak, incredible loss. And, and all of a sudden that personal loss is, it's like all those people did that. All those people did that, you know, and there, I, I mean, I went, I used, I did a lot of spirit uh, work. And, um, this one woman who was brave enough to work with me said, um, you have blow up BC anger. And I, and I did like incredible because the more I found out about colonialism, this was before I taught, uh, angrier I got. And I really couldn't, I couldn't handle being around white people, period. I, if they didn't understand, and that included a lot of my own family because they didn't want to know about all that. They didn't know and they didn't want to know. And I think that's really hard. And it is why you need to be able to talk to people. But as I grew professionally, I had more and more professional Aboriginal friends that, you know. So it's not, I think I'm more afraid of myself. I'm more afraid of how deeply, you know, all of that information went into me and informed me and my body. And it freed me. But it also leaves a burden of knowledge, a burden of, uh, even if I'm really mad at, say, someone that's related to me that has no idea <laughs> what they're saying, or because there is a lateral violence, there is self-hatred, there is, you know, so learning to have that kind of generosity toward others is it's a big thing to have. And uh, in a lot of ways, I think um, it's good if you have uh, a fair amount of good, good non-native friends that will can take it. <laughs> <laughs> because if I have to take them, they have to take me. And, and I do. I've had, I had this lovely friend that used to say, oh, and I say, you can't say that. And this is why. And, and, you know, or sometimes I get fed up and walk away. But um, having a, a lot of different friends helps. And some days, you know, you just want to be with your own family. Some days you only want to be with other Native people that are working where you are. And then other days you don't want to do anything except, you know, be away from it all. So, But it is a huge responsibility to be a professional person and represent anything, any history, any kind of work. And I don't think that, you know, I'm with Tanya, I don't, I don't think that that should be our job, but it's kind of hard to avoid. <laughs> um, 
I do think we have to make it really interesting so that we have a really broad, broad readership. So I have one thing about art, just because I used to make art. What do you, do you make art as well? Um, I do performance and I do music composition. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. I love the idea of performance. I love looking at it because it was just so, like, what, what are they doing? Like, it, I, I just, I love that it was miraculous and um, so uh, that really compressed poetry that you, you, you're all like amazed about, but you don't have language for is just awe. So after I studied it more, I still was in awe. I still, I still am when I see different performance and I, I, I don't know how people think like that. It's a whole other way of living in the world. I know through this project, talking to all the different performance artists that are involved in the hashtag call response project, I'm feeling that same way that you're speaking of because I'm just at this base level and I'm, I'm seeing all of the different ways that, that different peoples from places that I've never been are receiving information from the land and from their experience and then interpreting it in poetry and then bringing it out and it is it is so wild <laughs> i mean performance art is um is something that may never truly be understood by me <laughs> i don't think it's a language i think it's i think that part where you go wow is that it's somatic to such a degree that and I think that this is true, like when I'm looking at this stuff about the, um, the, uh, the passion plays, is that um, they experienced it. It, it was, um, what do you call that, when, it, when something gets materialized through the body, there was something conceptual going on that was religious and everything, but it was so embedded in their bodies. Like almost everything is about how they responded within their bodies, you know. And it was all out in the land, right? So they'd be walking over lands that you have these, and it was thousands, thousands of people, Native people gathered. And they'd be walking over these landscapes. Um, but then there'd be this whole other layer of non-Native people mixed, you know, uh, whether it was Hawaiian laborers, Chinese, white people, whatever. They're like watching the penitents walk by all the tableaus and they're singing in, in Salishan, Halkamilam, Halkaminam, then the languages that are up in the interior, but they're singing in Chinook, they're singing in French, they're singing in Latin. What? What? That's a performance. <laughs> so it's really hard when you're just looking at pictures and reading to remember that there's a performance and that whole history. But I, I like writing. I wrote about Rebecca Belmore a few times. I kind of had to stop. <laughs> I do really like her. I saw Scawinati, uh recently. She came out from Montreal, and I went to look at her work that she was doing on, um, what is that called when you create avatars? You know, you create, you can go into, you create worlds with avatars and um so she teaches it to young people and she uses all these past histories of indigenous people so they can go back and forth through these worlds and histories from the present into the past. It's quite amazing. 
and she teaches young people how to make those things. So she does workshops and she's amazing. Another, another whole other approach to, so I'm so I'll be glad when I'm finished the PhD because then I can really enjoy, you know, doing what I want next. I don't know what that is. So <laughs> doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> At least a reset, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I said um, when I quit my job, I taught there for sixteen years, and I thought I don't really like teaching anymore because it was all, you know, marking and teaching English and whatever basic history papers but I thought I liked it when I didn't know what I was going to be doing the next year and this PhD has taken me so long I haven't known but <laughs> I really don't know what I'll do next I I don't know what kind of writing I want to do or you know where I'll work but I definitely um, I'm looking forward to a change more interactive because I used to teach, we used to team teach, right? So we, three of us taught big classes together. And I liked it a lot more. I want to make things that are about writing, but more than, I, I would say more poetic, more creative nonfiction on that line. You know, once you've learned how to do something, that's enough. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Move on to it. So I've done the PhD pretty soon, but it's almost finished. And I don't think it's everything. I don't I don't think anybody necessarily needs it. I'm not saying don't do it. Just don't do it if you're not loving it. Because there's no money in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're a poor artist anyway, so... <laughs> Is there any other reflections that you have taken note of from listening to the conversation I had with um, um, Tanya that you'd like to share? I, I um, so I had to do, I never went to high school, so I had to do a BA. I, I had to do a French for my BA. Then I had to uh, do a language for my MA, so I did it in Haida. Uh, I did my most recent one in Spanish. I don't remember any of it. Not none of it. I mean, a few words, maybe once in a while. But when I had to learn Haida, um, I was living in Haida Gwaii then for a while. And when I had to do Haida, I couldn't find anyone to teach me on the island because I didn't grow up there. I grew up on the mainland. And um, so I had some very nice people help me for a little while in Skidigit. So I learned Skidigit Haida, which is very different. Um, like it's very uh, long like it's got a very sing-song nice that meant I didn't want to get up yet but um, so I decided I, I have to go just live with mom and dad otherwise I wasn't going to get my mat I finished everything else so I just went and I lived with my parents for the whole summer for four or five four months four or five months and I learned enough to be able to speak 
two dialects, give a little talk. Uh, I could answer questions and say little things. And the guy, he was a good guy, gave me my language, right? So that was good. And since, and there were really wasn't much going on there enough. There wasn't enough for me. And so, but now it's, it's really good. Like the language has really taken off there, which I really liked. And I was thinking about that with her, about how important it is, because language is really, you know, like in Haida, you don't say, why don't you come over and eat at my house? Or like, why don't you, because you didn't own your house. So you'd say, come and stay by me, sit by me. But you would never say, come to my house. Same way you never said, my kids. You would say, the children of, da, 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 da. And I liked all of those very those cultural things about, because I, I think a lot of that cultural way of looking at the world was very much still alive in the way that my grandparents, my, my grandmother was, my Simshian grandmother who I lived with, she was amazingly kind, good woman. And she was, and my mom was a very good person. So <clears throat> I saw that in the way they treated kids. And I love that because they, my, my grandmother, really taught me how to be really kind and respectful to little kids and to grandchildren. And I'm, I'm grateful for her teaching. But I think that all those things are embedded in language. So when she was talking about living there and I thought, yeah, you really do have to where the language speakers are and you have to live in an environment where that you can learn that language. I think I think if I was younger, I would maybe press on and try to learn more, either more Haida or whatever. I don't, I, I'd probably pick Haida because I already learned some of it, but I really like some Aliyah too because the uh, Simshian language because it has this really, they go, um, you know, their their language is Akadiko, you know, they have these elong they have these beautiful elongated A's and so there's this beauty in language. Yes. Then you learn to use it and it's funny and it's fun when you're learning. But it really does have to be part of an environment that it it grew grew out of. And in that way I think it's brilliant that she's doing that there. And it is it, it's such a, I think it's really important because I've seen people really pull their languages back in and maybe it's not going to be perfect or as big, you know, but I think it's possible for us to do amazing things because then it's really, you know, part of your landscape, your, your everything. It becomes part of your macro landscapes that you make too. So I think that that part of her work is fabulous. Hmm. Are you excited to collaborate for the hashtag hashtag call response project? I am. I, I, I'll be happier when I'm finished my dissertation. Like I, <laughs> like I still have to dot the I's and on this last chapter. And then I have a conclusion that's only three quarters finished and I only have two days left to do it. Oh but this helped me in a way because one of the things that I have to say about, I anchored the thing in these two individuals, one's from the north and one's from down here. And I'm arguing and I'm saying, I don't know, because that bothers me. I read so much material and everyone talks as if they know so much. I think, 
You don't know. Did they know what they were measuring heads? What did they know? Nothing. It was, you know, however. So I'm thinking I really wrote it like maybe, maybe this happened. Listen, somebody said they were here. And so I love this anchoring it in to two individuals and thinking maybe, maybe these things happen. And that might be all we'll ever get as part of our pasts. But it's worthwhile to find something that joins us together because we do create macro regions. We have commonalities that might go on or they might not. But for now, here they are and they're so important, you know. And if we're lucky, we keep up those friendships through Facebook now. But didn't you visualize Facebook? I visualized a Facebook long before it came. Totally. <laughs> I know it has its drawbacks. I wouldn't put my art up in there if I was an artist, but I love sharing the pictures and keeping in touch with people. So, yeah, I think we're, I think it's, we're lucky. We're mm. lucky to be talked together and, and it's worth it, you know. And soon when this is over, as soon as I hand this part in, I'll be more free to, you know, really hook up better with her and I do have a lot of things that I know I won't I she I know she'll be interested in but I'm also looking forward to I like listening to her this morning she's very clear not wordy <laughs> <laughs> as in some people I know <laughs> okay uh. Um, I've been asking everybody this, and I know it's um, not necessarily something you have to answer, only if you feel comfortable, but because of the um, the birth of the project um, coming out of Canada, etc. Um, do you have an interpretation on reconciliation? How, how do you feel about reconciliation personally? Well, I'm sure a million people have said this. Uh, I think... I think we have to reckon I think indigenous peoples have to reconcile themselves to to some degree to things that we can't change. Um, you know, there's only three things you can do about a bad situation, right? You can stay and accept it. You can stay and work it out or you can leave. And um, I think that I've left mostly that situation, but um, the word re doesn't really work for me because there's nothing to reconcile to. Like I remember, uh, when I, before I started, maybe after, just before I started my MA, I did some work in Prince Rupert and it was for school district 52. And this guy I went to school with, he says, well, weren't we friends? Weren't we good friends in school? And I said, we were good friends in your world, but we weren't good friends in my world, you know, like, and then I reminded him of, you know, the things that they did to women, like clue chopping, which is really just gang banging, picking up the drunkest woman you can find, raping her out, bringing her drop. And that was nothing. That's what boys did. That's what young men did in high school. So that was, was I think it was... So 63, 64, 63, 64. So maybe, you know, I think small towns are a little bit behind the times, you know, maybe it was. But I actually never knew about racism until I went to high school. I don't know about you, but 
people are a little bit nicer when you're a kid. But uh, to reconcile myself to what I didn't go to residential school. I don't know what that means. I, I, I really don't. I, I mean, I think a reconciliation between all white people, all colonialism and colonized people, on what level, you know? If I was a residential school survivor, I can't even barely listen to it anymore. I don't know how they live it. And I'm really grateful because my parents didn't go to residential school. And my mom's mother only went to day school. So I was just my grandfather went. And in a lot of ways, he was the biggest fly in the ointment in our environment. And so reconcile myself to but learning about colonialism allowed me to forgive people, indigenous people who were harmed and who did harm to others. Um, I've reconciled that. I've worked a lot on forgiveness around indigenous people who are already harmed, who did harm in, you know, laterally. But around religion and governments, no, they're still stealing land. <laughs> stealing land. They're still taking. They're still lying. They're still doing crap. Like, no. I mean, no. I'll reconcile with all indigenous people who I think have harmed, you know, as public servants or, you know, at a local level, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, but no, I, I, I think that bigger thing is something for Paula, you know, that's another leadership to do. And as, you know, as Tanya says, there's really people, really amazing people that are on the ground and they're doing that work. And I'm glad because I'll tell you one last story and then I'm going to go. When I worked for 16 years, the best part of it was I worked with a woman called Ellen White. She was a uh, uh, she worked in Nanaimo, so she was, they're not, I can't remember their, their name, their actual name. Oh, it'll come to me. Anyway, Ellen White spoke her own language, you know, a Coast Salish dialect, and, and uh, she really worked hard with us. She, she did, they did cleansings. They took us to the, you know, they bathed us in cold water to make sure we could do the work that we could do. And she was the biggest gift for me. She gave me, like, they taught us prayers. They taught us to sing songs in their language that were prayers that were, that were, that were private prayers. But they, like that lady she said that gave her a gift, taught her that. I felt protected by her in that environment. And it's taken people that actually live in a space to create those environments so that people like me who I'm not, I'm a floater, right? So I could go in and live there with them for a while and learn. And they're so good to me. They took me into the big house. They brought me in for winter dancing. I saw a lot of amazing things that I never saw in the North ever. Of course, because I was religious, right? But also because I just don't think that they were still doing those things up North. And uh, if they were, they weren't doing it in Prince Rupert. But she was really the person that introduced me to the fact that there was something else going on in a spirit world place 
that couldn't be explained or articulated with language that had to be felt and known deep, deep within you. And as long as there's those kinds of teachers, and she's certainly done an amazing job of teaching it to her own sons and, you know, Doug White and all those people from the island that are doing amazing work. I think that as long as there's those people, they can, they can take on reconciliation at that structural level. anything that you could say to the world this is your soapbox moment well I could always draw I knew I could draw that was one thing when I went to school I could I didn't have any high school I knew I could draw and I knew I could write so I wanted to write down the stories that my grandma told me when we were kids and that was my goal for going to uh, take a BFA well I just took night courses at first uh, you know but then I learned more about our history. Then I knew how to draw. Then I learned how to draw. Then I could do all that. And I was like, well, okay, that's not it. But it started with, with that little thing I wanted to do. And one course at a, at a, on how to paint. I was painting, and then there was a design course, how to mix colors. And I became a very good watercolorist and an oil painter. And then um, I learned all of that. And since well, I was just thinking about this the other day, it all just started with that. And now I've come in a way full circle where I recently learned this whole story about the Simshians. Uh, they had um, a relationship with uh, parallel spirits who lived not on the land, but were the land itself so that you would have fog people or mountain people or tree, whatever. There were all of these, and they're called Spenanoks. And so the Spenanoks had a world here, and the humans walked on that land. But in order to live on that land and with the Spenanoks, they had to join with them and have a relationship with them. And when I heard one of the stories was a story about the, this fog person. Then I remembered my grandma told me the story about this wind and it was about a porcupine and a beaver. And, and I remember saying, and the beaver, I, you know, the, the porcupine had gone across when the river was, it, it, it had gotten into the beaver's house, didn't know how to get off. So the wind came and blew the, you know, and then the porcupine was able to walk past. And I thought, Oh my God. I thought as I was studying all about the Spenanach and it was really hard to understand. It was like, Grandma was talking about Spenanach. Now, now I'm like, oh my God, now, I, now I'm going to tell those stories again. But now I have this new understanding that I got through academia, really, but through all those amazing people that interviewed all those Simshan people. Some of them were Harlan Smith, maybe. I don't know. But, but you know, so... Maybe that's the only re reconciliation there is. Maybe it is about 
you know, just do that little thing that you think you really want to do for your kids or your people or whatever it is, or because you just want to be an artist, period. You want to draw, you want to make things, but you know, commit to it and do that thing. Don't worry about that. Um, I would, I would honestly say that, uh, staying in the PhD was really old school. Like don't quit. Always finish what you start. And, I really worry that I've missed out on more than I should have. But uh, once you commit, just make sure you love it and that somehow it's tied to you, you know. And when it's time to let it go, you you know when a thing's over. It's like a relationship. Divorce it get, or let it go or give birth to it. <laughs> let it go. Let it go. Oh, totally. <laughs> 